Welcome to Breaking the Surface, where we break into a delicious beverage and also dive into the topic at hand. I'm one of your co-hosts, Taylor Kramer. I'm the owner and lead producer for Cold Shower Media. I'm Pat Milligan. I'm a journalist here in Traverse City. And I'm another friend. I am Anthony Weber, and I am a pastor and an ethics teacher, and I am something of a fashion icon when it comes to oversized sweaters. The point here is that we want to go beyond the talking points to get to the depths of what is happening in our world. It should also be said that this podcast is part of the Boardman Review Podcast Collective in collaboration with Cold Chart Media. The Podcast Collective aims to provide unique content curated by the Boardman Review, the creative culture and outdoor lifestyle journal of Northern Michigan. Welcome to episode six of Breaking the Surface. Uh, we are going to be talking today about kind of what the world is going to look like in entertainment and live events post pandemic and even kind of this transition now back into somewhat of a normal routine. And I was interested in talking about this with you guys for a few reasons. One, I know we all like pop culture and movies and sports and concerts. And so I just am curious about how you guys are feeling about how you experienced entertainment the last year and what you're most looking forward to doing again, what you might have some concerns or cautions about. Um, but also because before I was a journalist, I was an event planner and an event publicist. So I was the publicist for the Traverse City Film Festival for many years, um, did publicity for, you know, the craft beer festivals in town, um, did a lot of concerts, talent booking. So I really love those industries and love the idea of kind of creating these shared communal experiences where people are celebrating together, experiencing art together. But the last year has made me really curious about how that is all going to look going forward and if things are going to be really different and changed for good or if it's just going to bounce back and be sort of the same way it was. So I thought maybe a good way to start is I'm just curious about what your sort of entertainment consumption habits look like the last year. Like what kinds of things were you drawn to? Were you doing a lot of streaming? Like how did that look for you guys? You're going to make me cry right off the bat talking about this. I'll explain why. So for me, the mark of the pandemic was truly when March Madness was canceled. And I was thinking like planning ahead, you know, in, in February, I start to get really excited because college basketball is winding down. And, and I specifically take those days off of work for when March Madness kicks off that first week and watching that. And so that like broke my heart when they had to cancel that. So no one could be there in person, but also we couldn't even view it from our television. The second part is that I had my 30th birthday last May, which was right in the thick of most of the fear, right? Leading into the summer of 2020. And Abby had planned this extravagant birthday getaway where we were going to take the ferry across to Milwaukee and we were going to watch my favorite current basketball team, which is the Milwaukee Bucks, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Uh, I'm a huge fan of his and we had to cancel that trip. Mm. And so when we talk about gathering in person for things like entertainment, whether that's sports or concerts, um, stuff like that, that was really heartbreaking. And I actually, that had a bigger impact on me, I think, than I thought. I don't go to live events that often, um, but not being able to do that, that was really like hammered home for me right in the beginning. Um, as far as 
streaming and things like that. Of course, we all rely really heavily on streaming and we probably all have added new streaming services more than we thought we would ever need to have. I don't think I can even keep track of mine all the time. I just see charges pop up in my account. I'm like, when did I sign up for CBS? What's the saying? Your your streaming services should only be matched by your wine memberships or something (laughs) like that. Um, (laughs) They need to be even. Um, But I think I really changed my, my consumption more in terms of content. Like I didn't, I wasn't clamoring for the stuff that was super serious anymore uh, because I think so much of the serious nature of the world was so close to home now. And so I, I changed maybe the type of content I was trying to consume. In a lot of ways, I was even changing the type of content I was creating myself and uh, with my own podcast shows and, and even some YouTube videos I was putting out and stuff, I was trying to be a little bit more lighthearted. Um, so that's kind of where I landed is like, can I just embrace some of these less serious things? I think that's maybe why a Ted Lasso has become so popular the last year because of their approach to their content. So that's where that's where I've landed. I'm not so interested in the heavy stuff, but I think I can I can get back to that because that is where my heart has lied you know, mostly with just the type of content that I enjoy discussing the tough stuff. So what I miss the most is concerts. Last October, so this was October, 2020, I had a board meeting down in Pensacola. So my wife and I decided to go early and celebrate our anniversary and spend four or five days in Pensacola because it's Florida. So we get down there and uh, I mean, the weather's nicer for one, which is, which is cool. But I'm looking at all the local things. Like, I wonder how open Florida is and Pensacola is compared to Michigan. Well, we found this blues venue and it was their first night back after months off. This little hole in the wall place. um, I don't remember the name of it now and it doesn't matter. And so we went and spent about an hour and a half with a really good small blues band. And I just thought it was a little taste of heaven. I'd forgotten how much I missed live music. That, if I think about what it will look like when things open back up. I think of concerts. I, I really miss that experience. And I know there's a lot of discussion about how to do virtual concerts. We'll probably talk about that some more today, but uh, to me, there's just no, no substitute for something like that. I mean, if Interlock puts a concert on, I'll go. Especially if yep. it's Katie Lang, right? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen Katie Lang, but Johnny Lang, Johnny Lang is I'm probably sorry. who yeah, you're thinking John, of. That is who yeah, I'm thinking yeah, of. Yeah. I knew one of the Langs was in your wheelhouse. <laughs> Would you feel, um, do you have any reservations about going back to like a full concert right now, like an Interlock and size concert or bigger arena shows? Well, I've, I've had my shots. Yeah. And so, no, I mean, if it was a packed house, I would be conscious of it. There's no doubt about it because we've spent over a year now being conscious of it. And I think there's going to be a learning curve to actually learn how to relax in the midst of large groups. I keep reminding myself for 51 years, I was relaxed in large, tightly packed groups. And once COVID goes away, it's going to be what, well, hopefully what life was like before. So I would do it if, even if I was nervous, I think I need to get used to the practice of getting back into those kinds of things without being overly conscious. What about you, Taylor? Like, would you feel comfortable like either like in a full arena for a concert or for like a March Madness tournament or something like that? I would personally feel comfortable. And again, that's because I've been vaccinated in some ways. It does feel like now this superpower uh, (laughs) that I have where I can go out and, and engage with other people. Um, and to me, I feel comfortable engaging with them 
obviously if they've been vaccinated as well and I have that knowledge, but I still feel pretty comfortable even if they haven't been vaccinated. I mean, uh, from what we've seen with the vaccine, I think it provides a ton of protection. So I do feel good about that. And just trying to get back to whatever the, the, I don't know if it will be normal like it was prior to the pandemic, but any, any way of getting closer to what normal is to me is just comforting. And I want that sense of community. Like we like packed concerts, not all just because of the band and that we enjoy the band, but because we enjoy being around people that are enjoying the band Mm -hmm. and same thing with, with sporting events, like, Oh, you're cheering for the team, the same team I am. And and we're all mad at that same ref at the same time. Like, this is great. And those are the things that I miss. And yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable getting back to it. United by anger. Yeah, exactly. Good. I remember a number of years ago, a friend of mine is, was in a band called the band of heathens and they were down at the Ark in Lansing, believe it, or in Ann Arbor. Yeah. And this has stood out to me because I think this captures why you and I both like the live concert, the live experience thing. This band was grooving. They were like this country funk blues, Americana mix. It was fantastic. And at one point I look at the audience and the Ark's a fairly small venue and everybody's just nodding their head. You know, nobody's standing up going nuts. It wasn't that kind of music, but the entire audience, everybody's doing the same (laughs) groove. And I know people can't see what I'm doing here, but just that head nod you do with good blues. And once again, it was just, there was a unity there. There was a shared experience. It was like you're part of humanity. And, and that's why I tend to think there will be people going back to in-person venues, even watching a movie, like the first time seeing Lord of the Rings, being at the opening night, you know, the midnight showing, which in hindsight, I probably should have waited until the next day because I was pretty tired. <laughs> but uh, the whole, a whole theater full of people who for that showing are hardcore Lord of the Rings fans, you're all ooing and uh, you're all ooing and eyeing and applauding and laughing. I mean, everybody's into it and you just can't replace that experience by watching something from a distance or doing it virtually. So I'm looking forward to everything being back in person. I'm really curious to see how long that transition is going to take because we're still in this, you know, weird, uneasy period. So this summer, like things are starting to happen again. Right. So I just actually went to a Detroit Tigers game a few weeks ago And just even experiencing that, like you had to wear a mask when you were in your seat and even you're supposed to be wearing it in your seat when you weren't eating and drinking. But most people were just taking their masks off, to be honest, and just sitting there outside, which you didn't have anyone around you. They had spaced the seats out. And it was a really nice experience. It was sitting outside in the sunshine, eating a hot dog, watching baseball again. And it felt like great. And it was especially great because the capacity at the stadium was limited. So there were no lines for bathrooms, (laughs) no lines for concessions. You could go get a beer and be like back, you know, before the next batter was even up. And I was like, oh, I would like this experience. But that model is really not what those stadiums like revenue model is based on. And same thing for concerts, especially. So, you know, like the National Cherry Festival, which is obviously this big festival we have in Traverse City each summer. They're in this interesting quandary for summer where they're bringing back some things like there's a a beer tent or a car show or uh, arts and craft fair. And those are all things where they can control the in out capacity, you know, so they can limit it. But the concert. It's like they can't get enough people in there at this current capacity limits in the state to pay the artist fees, you know, for a big, you know, well-known band to come in. And that's probably the same thing like Interlochen is dealing with right now. They said they're trying to bring concerts back, but you have to like, you know, these 
these um, venues are all built around like sellout models where they can pay like 70 grand mm-hmm. or whatever it costs an artist to come in. And if they're at 25 or 50% capacity, they just can't make it work. So it could be a long time, I think, before we get to 100% where they're back to that. So maybe it'll be smaller shows or smaller artists um, in those limited venues. But then the other thing that I think is still going to linger, and this harkens back to our episode we did on vaccines, is I'm talking to so many event planners right now who are grappling with like, okay, if we have a venue that has different artists coming in tonight, do we require the talent to be vaccinated? Do we require the audience to be vaccinated? If they're not vaccinated, um, can we even ask for proof of that? Like, are we let like, so like the New York baseball stadiums are now going to have a vaccinated and unvaccinated section. They just have announced this is not for the whole MLB, but it's for New York. And the unvaccinated people will be socially distanced their seats. And so it'll be a smaller part of the stadium capacity. And then there's a large capacity for vaccinated people who can be closer together. And as you might imagine, this has already mm-hmm. created quite a bit of backlash <laughs> and comments from people who are like, I don't want to show my proof. There's definitely a growing momentum. And we talked about this before, but of people who aren't unvaccinated and sort of feel prejudiced against or that they're being labeled in some way as like others or deplorables or undesirables. And they're like in their own little health section. (laughs) So like some of that stuff, I'm just curious about like how it's not just going to be like tomorrow, everything's back to normal. And how do we feel about it? It's like, how do we feel about these venues continuing to try to do safety protocols as we're reopening? Yeah. One of the dilemmas is let's say you've got a relatively small concert venue or movie theater and you need to get bodies in seats. Well, in order to get enough bodies in seats to say, pull off a concert, you have to be able to put them close together. Mm -hmm. And if you can't do it, you don't have the concert. So if you require proof of a vaccine, that's the way you do the show. Mm -hmm. Like, otherwise it doesn't happen. It feels like they're in a really tough spot. I, I get the tension. It's like the sneeches from Dr. Seuss. Do you remember that one? <laughs> I do. But yeah. yeah. There, I get that tension. Like there's this sense of like the haves and have nots or whatever the divide it is. But at some point businesses in order to stay open and actually do business have to make some hard choices like that. Just like the baseball stadiums, they can't afford to do that forever. They're, like you said, they're not built for that. They have to have a way to get more people. And I've heard from people who are unvaccinated and I I get it. If I had a deep moral objection to getting the vaccine, and again, we've talked about this, but more and more and more parts of society were shut off to me or I was made to feel scrutinized or that I had to prove something or less than to get into these venues or being like a weird caste system where I'm in a different seating area or whatever. I get how that's uncomfortable. The flip side of it is that businesses and event organizers are responsible for the liability and safety yeah. of their staff and the other customers there and the artists. So if you had a massive COVID outbreak at a small venue like the Ark, because there's a couple of sick people there and everyone's breathing the same air for two hours, you know, they're on the hook potentially for that liability. So it's just, I think it's challenging, but I am excited about aside from those things, which I think are going to be thorny (laughs) for maybe a year or two until things settle down. Hopefully Um, I'm still excited about the possibility of some sort of going back to events, especially movies, because I love movie theaters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're comfortable. Like if, if right now they, a local event or local place was hosting a concert at, 
hundred percent capacity, would you attend that as a vaccinated person? I think so. I have felt the same way you have Taylor, which is like the superpower thing of, I know I'm not invincible. Like the vaccine doesn't work that way, but I do feel pretty protected that I probably won't get seriously ill or die from COVID that statistically. Um, so I have noticed even I've been a little more comfortable going to restaurants, which is sort of my way of easing back in. I've gone inside some breweries and tasting rooms, which before I was only doing outside during the pandemic. And it just gave me a sense of control that if someone was being rude or a jerk about masks or safety or sneezed on me or spit on whenever, if something happened, it's no longer like out of my control. I feel like a little bit of a layer of protection from other people's behavior. Um, but it is sort of weird to think about being back in like a crowd of like 10,000 people. Like maybe I would start with a couple hundred and ease back into that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wonder how much of that is not just fear of getting sick, but also just kind of like forgetting what that environment was like. I don't even know what I would do like in a packed football stadium. It just, it's, it seems like so far from a possibility. It's been so far from a possibility the last year and a half. I'm like, I don't know what I, it's like Ricky Bobby. What do I do with my hands right now during the, during the interview? I don't know. I feel like I've lost a lot of my ability to socialize in large groups. And, um, that is going to be something I think Anthony, you'd kind of said, like, we have to kind of build back up to that and make it, make it normal again in a lot of ways. Yeah. I think that might actually be part of kind of a commitment that we make is recognizing there are some mental or emotional blocks in place that probably aren't actually realistic in the settings that we're moving into and what does it look like to very purposefully walk back into those things? Beth and I have a mutual friend who lives in China and he's been posting for a while. In fact, he lives close to Wuhan and he's been posting for a while pictures where like bars are fully open. Clubs are fully open. They're packed. Everybody's unmasked. It looks like life went back to normal pretty quickly. Last year, 2020, China had a fantastic theater season. Mm -hmm. And currently their concert venue schedules are sold out and steady. Like it seems like the entertainment side in China has pretty much gone back to normal. Once something kind of clicked in people that it was okay, they seem to have reverted fairly quickly to what it was like before. And I wonder if we won't see that here too. Once you get one or two gigs under your belt and everything's fine, it might just be full bore from there. I do wonder, so I, I had the ability to kind of do this back-to-back -back comparison where, so I've gone to a lot of the big festivals in the country. Like I've been to Coachella, I've been to Bonnaroo, um, some of the New York music festivals. And then last year for the first time, I went with my partner, Joe, to Sundance and he had worked at Sundance for many years and it was my first time going. And so I had that whole experience of doing the Sundance Film Festival in person, January, 2020, at the time where we later realized probably a lot of people at that festival got COVID, but we didn't have a name for it. We just knew like we had a roommate sometimes who was like sick on the couch, like the entire week. And then we were sick afterwards and we're like, do we all have COVID? But um, anyways, so I had that experience of seeing what that was like and all the logistical things of like, you know, going from movies at 8am to 1am and getting the shuttle transportation and getting tickets and trying to get things in between shows and like having like great communal audience experiences. But there's also like a lot of headaches, logistical headaches headaches and costs to going to festivals. And then this past January, 2021, they did a virtual film festival. And so we did that. And we also did the virtual South by Southwest film festival in April. And that was a really interesting experience having done publicity for and gone to film festivals for so many years to see how they pivoted because 
it is a, in theory, a festival that works online. It's just content, you know, it's just movies being delivered to your TV screen. South by Southwest had an amazing TV interactive app where all the you had channels for the different types of films and it was all there and accessible. They did live Q and A's that you could stream afterwards and chat in. And I thought it was really seamless and well done. And it made me kind of what I think might be a trend or at least hope would be a trend coming out of this. I don't think the live communal experience will disappear, but I do think that there will be this trend of offering an additional access virtually to those live events that will make them much more accessible to much more people, if that makes sense. So today we are drinking a Kingston Black from 2K Farms. This is a hard cider and 2K, I'm actually a member there. So I love their tasting room. It's kind of located up between Traverse Cities and Sutton's Bay. It looks over Grand Traverse Bay. It's got really beautiful views up on the hill. Um, and they do a lot of great different apple ciders. And so this Kingston Black is what they call a rare offering. So it's kind of a more limited edition uh, yeah. So a special bottle I busting open just for the podcast, but it is described as a full body single varietal cider with a nice blend of acid tannins and fruit. And this is a bitter sharp apple that is traditionally grown in the cider producing regions of Great Britain. Mm. So kind of an English style apple cider. Hey, I, I, I really like it. Um, I have a uh, issue with cider sometimes where I can have one, but I can very rarely have two. Hmm. I feel like this one I could have two. So I really like it. What can we, let's explore that on a different podcast. <laughs> yeah. Is it just like yeah. the apples doesn't, you don't, doesn't sit well. I mean, you don't it like maybe it. some personal digestive issues or something. Yeah. <laughs> some bad experiences with apples when you were a kid. Maybe. Yeah. One, one bad apple ruined the whole bunch. I don't yeah. know. Something like that. Well, I was thinking this was a hard cider, but it goes down easy. Oh, oh. Right. again, I'm going to edit that with out. The dad singer. <laughs> <laughs> and the last thing I'll add to is it's gluten-free. So oh. I know like a lot of people, if you have a hard time drinking craft beer, which we like to do on this show, but uh, the cider is gluten-free. So it's a good option for that. So once again, that is the Kingston Black uh, from 2K Farms. Thanks guys. That's something that I had experienced and I'm wondering how much of um, me being informed in this moment, moving forward for events, even things like going out to a movie is um, impacted by not wanting to run the risk of subjecting myself to a crappy movie and all the effort that I put in when they've been so readily available just to stream it. So we have HBO max, which has, it's crazy to me, but they can offer a lot of the the new releases. So alongside them being released in theaters, whichever theaters are open, they're also releasing them to people that have are paying for the HBO max subscription, which paying for the subscription is much cheaper than I think even going out to just one movie. And so I watched the mortal Kombat movie. And I grew up on Mortal Kombat. How so was I was it, really excited. I, I actually kind of liked it, okay. <laughs> but I feel like I kind of liked it because I could stop and pause it and, and watch it in my own chair. I don't know if I would have liked it as much if I had to drive all the way into town, pay $12, $13 for my ticket, um, as well as get some concessions, stuff like that. And so I think a lot of the shift in my thinking has just been shaped by how the content is being presented to me and in which way I'm able to get it. Whereas before COVID, I was, I was running the risk of driving all the way into town, seeing a movie and finding out I never liked it. I don't know if I'm as willing to take those risks anymore because I didn't have to for a year and a half. Yeah. How do you feel? Did you, how do you feel about the idea though, of scaling like the immersive theater experience down to 
a TV screen, especially for like a big spectacle movie, like a superhero or even a mortal combat type of movie. Yeah. I was, as we were preparing for this conversation, I was reminded of as a kid when I went to a lot more movies and you brought up Lord of the Rings and that is what always sticks with me. Lord of the Rings and the Spider-Man movies, Mm -hmm. because growing up, I was sitting in the seat and probably up until I was like 16 years old, I was like physically shaking in my seat. I was so excited to see like what Gandalf and Aragorn were going to do in the next movie. As you should have been. Yes. And and they were all (laughs) awesome. And then I went even further back. So to me, the first like live action superhero movies I remember is Batman. So we're talking about like the Val Kilmer and the Michael Keaton versions of Batman. And we would watch those movies and then I would, we'd be down in uh, our bedroom. So my older brother and I shared a a bedroom and we were like, do you think they'll ever be able to make a Spider-Man movie? Because he, he swings from skyscrapers (laughs) and we're like, I just don't think it's going to be even be possible. This was before CGI. So Mm -hmm. we just, in our little brains couldn't even imagine living in a world where Spider-Man would be on the big screen. And then when that happened, it was like a life altering experience. We're like, Toby Maguire is swinging from skyscrapers <laughs> right now. And those are memories that like I cherish. Like you think it's odd to cherish a memory of sitting in a seat for an hour and a half, but they were like life altering things that I will always remember going to those shows with, with my grandma and with my brothers. And in some ways I feel like those experiences aren't as possible anymore, even if the movie is good. Mm. Um, because I. I just have so many things at my disposal through streaming services. I don't think this has anything to do with the pandemic. I think it has to do with the streaming services. So my first big screen experience where I might've cried a little bit was Jurassic park. Mm-hmm. Cause I was a huge dinosaur fan and I was an adult when this movie came out and I'm not embarrassed to say, I think I teared up when the brontosaurus as I think it was first appeared on the screen. Yeah. Like that was so amazing. And then hear the surround sound, you know, the theater's shaking. So that was the one that sticks out of my mind. First, the most recent one was I took my youngest son to see Kong versus Godzilla, which let's just ignore the plot. <laughs> if you want to see a big monsters fighting movie, mm-hmm. that's the movie to go see. Yeah. And I watched that on HBO max as well. Okay. Yeah. Um, I couldn't imagine have having liked it that much if it was on a small screen. Mm. I really enjoyed it on a big screen. And so to me, I wonder if, well, okay. I, I never was inclined to go see non-actiony movies on a big screen anyway. I wonder if you'll just see more of say the rom-coms, different things like that. People get them on the small screen because the spectacle isn't as important as the story. Whereas the next superhero movie that comes out, I want to see it on a big screen rather than a small screen. Yeah. So you might just get more selective in what's being premiered in theaters. Yeah. Selective is a good word. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because there are like indie films that also, I think, do lend themselves to big, like, you know, Nomadland had like really sort of, I saw it on a small screen, but it had really like extravagant cinematography or like Terrence Malick movies where Mm -hmm. it's really, you know, based on these sort of beautiful wide nature Shots And I do, I love going to movie theaters. I love movies. I had an AMC like subscription pass before. So I would kind of, I think, take the economical hit. Cause I, you know, it was paid, it paid like $19 a month and I could see as many movies as I want. So I would go see like a dumb surfing movie or a Mortal Kombat movie. Cause I was like, for me, it's, I don't care if it's really bad. Yeah. Taylor, <laughs> did you just hear her compare Mortal Kombat to a dumb surfing movie? Yeah. That's what Blue I heard. Crush and Sorry. Mortal Kombat or whatever that movie yeah. is. <laughs> Blue Crush is a great movie. Um, no, but so I, I, I didn't mind it. And I, 
I think I like I'm most excited about going back to movies, although there's sort of this weird lull in content now because, you know, Hollywood was shut down for like the last year. So I'm now comfortable because I'm vaccinated going. But I was like looking at AMC's like lineup this weekend and I was like, I don't this all looks stupid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like none of I mean, aside from Mortal Kombat, which looked like <laughs> the citizen cane of our generation. I feel like we're tiptoeing around this now. <laughs> I just didn't see much, but I and I'm kind of interested to see what's gonna happen content wise because things are starting to film again. There were a bunch of releases that were supposed to come out last year that were delayed, so they're gonna be coming out now. But I think, you know, you're right. Like Warner Brothers had this deal with HBO Max. So to release these things at the same time, um, I'm seeing a couple debuts like Quiet Place 2 and some things coming up in the next few weeks where they're like they're making it a point to be like only available in theaters. You know, they're sort of hyping that trying to get people back. I do think having sort of looked at this industry for the last year, because a lot of well-known theater chains closed. I mean, AMC was already the model was already struggling for theaters. You know, they're making their money on concessions and they're having a lot of competition from streaming already. And then you have a year where no one can go to the movies and like a, a lot of them didn't make it out. And now I think even coming back, they're looking at the models. Like I do think the release window times are going to shorten permanently. So you might have a movie showing in theaters for now a month or two months instead of before it might be like six or eight months before it would come out on video or streaming mm-hmm. after it had been in the theater. And that was like the result of deals that the studios made with the theater so that it wouldn't eat into their studio revenue by having it on HBO at home. And, you know, Disney's doing the same thing with like Disney premiere where you can watch the new Cruella movie coming out soon in the theaters or pay like 20 bucks and watch it at home. So I just, I'm curious like how these trends are going to change the whole business model aside from just our desire to be back in the mm-hmm. theater, I guess. Yeah. Does that mean that people, studios or, or whoever's creating the movies have to understand that their consumers are constantly weighing, uh, is the spectacle worth it to go to the theater yeah. or am I going to value accessibility? Like I'm thinking we already had this trend where um, Netflix was coming out with originals and they rival some of these big studio shows that were being sent to theaters. So I just watched Without Remorse, which is a Tom based on a Tom Clancy book. That was on Amazon Prime. I don't think that ever would have gone to theaters. I think that was something that was always going to go right to Amazon Prime streaming service. And I watched it and I almost like want to see it again in Mm -hmm. theaters because the fight scenes were that cool. But yet I don't think it would have caught my attention enough that I would have gone to the theater to even watch it the first time. So for that one, it was accessibility, but I would appreciate the spectacle of it on the big screen. I remember uh, a model of theaters, and I don't know if this is still happening or not, but the dinner theaters, Mm -hmm. go see dinner and movie. And when we lived close to Columbus, Ohio, it was often second run movies that were showing. So the movies were really cheap, but it was the food, like once again, where they made their money, but it wasn't concessions. It was full meals. Mm. I wonder if there's a, a model to be talked about that is first run movies with nice meals and you could set something up in a way where you've got space. I mean, it would be easy to make like clear partitions. Let's just say the pandemic remains a reality for a while. God forbid, but let's just say that does. I think you could find a way to create a venue that feels pretty safe to people and you're still making money off of your food, perhaps more than you would have off of concessions. I don't know, especially if you're going to serve alcohol, that's where a lot of your money's made. Mm Mm-hmm. And do first run movies just with an expectation that not as many people are going to show up. I don't know. I'm not a businessman. That would appeal to someone like me. 
Yeah. That's a whole date night in one package. I'm not mm-hmm. going two different places. It's not overly crowded anywhere I'm going. Um, yeah, I suspect the innovation that comes out of this with ideas like that will be intriguing to see. I mean, that's something that Alamo was doing and they were a casualty of the pandemic too. But I, I think that that model could work. And I also think, you know, there's been a lot of discussion. I've read a lot of articles about like what kind of content theaters will offer that it might not just be movie premieres. Um, so one thing that was popular during the pandemic was allowing private rentals of individual theaters. And I think that might continue because that became really popular. And if you have any people who are still concerned about safety, you know, being able to rent a theater for your birthday party and show your favorite movie from the year you were born or, you know, like being able to actually pick the movie and pick the time and place that you and all the people that are in the audience with you, I think will continue. And then I've been seeing so I was just reading this article today. AMC theaters is going to be showing a concert film from chance, the rapper uh, this month who is a musician. I really like, but this is like a new sort of deal where they're, going to be debuting the concert there instead of like having a chance to rapper concert mm. in an arena. And I've seen a lot of talk about things like that. So maybe like having like, you know, a TEDx uh, show at a, an AMC or a Q and a with like your favorite author or musician or economist or whatever, or doing like all these kind of different virtual events that aren't just movies where it might be motivating enough for you to go to a theater versus like, having to drive to Detroit. And that's what I'm excited about is like the potential democratization of content where I think if you don't live in a big city, and I'm really excited about this for Broadway as an example, but like when they made the decision, they were going to put Hamilton in theaters and the pandemic happened and they put it on Disney plus. And so we all Mm -hmm. watched it like the 4th of July in my friend's backyard. And I love Hamilton. And I was like, this is so great because I did have the chance to go to New York and see Hamilton, but it costs like $500 for my ticket (laughs) and people can't afford that. And they can't go to see Broadway shows unless they're in New York. So you have to pay to go to New York. You have to pay the expensive Broadway show. Like I've always thought that they should be taping those shows and you could sell them for a ticket price online, but make that content available because you can't see big concerts. You can't see um, necessarily all the sports playoffs if they're not being televised in your market. You can't see Broadway shows, but there's nothing to prevent that content from being widely accessible to everyone in the country simply by streaming it. Yeah, I this reminds me too, when you talk about the democratization, I mean, we hear all the time of, oh, the, the, the 50 yard line Super Bowl ticket, someone bought it for $40,000. Yeah. And we all look at that and we're like, that's a yearly income for a lot of people. And I'll never be able to achieve that. Virtual reality is also coming into the fray. Yeah. And I have a friend who just bought a virtual reality set. And I would say it's lower to mid-level tier of like what's even available right now. So maybe it was like a $300 system and I was playing some games on it and I was blown away because I was thinking if there's opportunities for people to have this system and then purchase some type of courtside seat to a basketball game to where you're there. And when you turn your head, you're looking at one side of the court. When you turn your head the other way, you're looking at the other side. Like those are all things that I think through technology are also going to become more available and I think that that part is really, really exciting. You're, you're allowing people to experience totally new things. Like, you know, if, if there was a big blockbuster movie, even if I couldn't afford to go to the theater, eventually I would probably be able to get it from 
you know, blockbuster family video for a couple of bucks and rent it for a week. But I'm never going to be able to sit courtside, really, I don't think, unless yeah. Abby, maybe my 32nd birthday. <laughs> um, that's just <laughs> probably not going to be a reality for me and my and the income that I have. And so if that were offered even for, you know, a couple of hundred bucks to sit courtside with a virtual reality headset on, I am, I would absolutely do that. And I think that's kind of exciting. Yeah. And think like how many, like, I don't know, like kids of color never get to see a Broadway show or like, so there's whole like artistic mediums where we sort of perpetuate these stereotypes because only people of certain like classes or incomes are typically accessing that content, like the opera, you know, or just things that we think of as sort of being like these kind of antiquated, you know, this is for old, rich white people, but like maybe it wouldn't be, but the accessibility is really limited mm -hmm. to that demographic. So all of a sudden, if you can show a Broadway show in a elementary school classroom mm -hmm. or, you know, have high school kids see a Met opera show, which the actually our state theater here in Traverse City would live stream the Met shows and they were super popular. Zoo tours. Zoo tours. Yeah. Any kind of like cool things. I don't, I think what for me, the difference is, is I don't want to see the live experience completely replaced. I mean, Anthony was talking about how it feels to be in a concert. That's how I feel in a movie when everyone's scared or laughing at the same time, there is something beautiful about that communal mm -hmm. experience. But I think the last year has made me really think about issues of accessibility, particularly for like lower incomes and people of color. And the idea of like, creating or, you know, going to a museum, like having cool virtual museum tours, which is how a lot of people were experiencing art during the pandemic just because mm -hmm. it was fun. But that like allows, again, kids who might not ever get to go to a museum like the Met to mm -hmm. see the Met. And I just think that is a really important accessibility thing that could be really cool and also bring more revenue, frankly, to those organizations. Yeah. I was just thinking about it's like, I can't believe there's snooty people out there that are like, oh, my Broadway show was canceled. I can't go see it in person. And I'm sitting there thinking I was never going to be able to do that. Yeah. And I just gave an example of a Milwaukee Bucks game that I was going to go to. And some people are like, I've never been to a pro or college sporting event. And so how are we figuring out? You could if you wanted to. I could, but I never yeah, have. Big Ohio State fan. Um, so I think that that is is pretty cool is that they're we might end up living in a world where those that value the in-person experience can still go make that happen. And then those that would never be able to access that content can maybe get it in a different form. So whether that's streaming it, or if we get really crazy and talk about the virtual reality stuff again, that's, I'm okay with living in a world like that. And it was such a pain in the ass to go to Sundance. I'll just say, I mean, I loved having the privilege of that experience, but it, the whole logistical aspect of it, I was so tired at the end of that week. It's so expensive in Park City to just like every beer is like $15. It's like, it was just exhausting and expensive and hard, even though it was fun and privileged. But I was like, there's no reason. There's so many people who come to Sundance and my partner Joe could talk about this, but there's so many people come and it's like a make or break. Like their career is made at Sundance. Mm. They sell a film at Sundance and like everyone from Tarantino, Steven Soberg has like made their debut there. But there's a lot of indie filmmakers who come and like some people go to their screening at Sundance and then it's like never picked up and never seen again. But if you still did the Sundance Film Festival, but you made that whole slate of content available digitally to anyone in the country at home for like five bucks a film, 10 bucks a film, whatever it is, so many more people get to access that mm -hmm. filmmaker. It's great for the artists as well as the people at home. Mm -hmm. One thing we haven't talked about is uh, gaming, the world of gaming, which was already trending, but even more so this last year has really picked up momentum. And I think the more you get into augmented and virtual reality in the gaming world, the more it's going to make everything else look tame. 
Mm. And to me, that's kind of the wild card of all the wild cards we've discussed. This is the one that probably stands out to me the most is if that continues the momentum it has, I really wonder how much of that's going to change the industry even more than just where the audience is. In what way? Like what could you imagine? Uh, so I've done a little bit of stuff with virtual reality and it's astonishing. And if you have the capacity to buy the things that let you engage with it, once you take that headset off, the thing you watch on a flat screen just looks mm-hmm. tame. And especially as they start getting into augmented reality, um, I just, I think what's going to kind of, uh, what's a good way to say this? I think that experience is, is going to just top everything else. And people are going to want to focus their time and energy money into having more and more immersive experiences. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder how much that's going to knock some of these other things off the page. I wonder it's like if you guys have read or seen Ready Player One, but like mm-hmm. kind yeah. of that idea of like they're all living in these virtual worlds yeah. or like, the you know, the Matrix. I mean, it's not a brand new idea, but I do like that kind of technology makes me wonder about both the good and bad implications mm-hmm. as most technology yeah. when we talk to, you know, three ethical people about that, because it's like, again, there's so much cool, so many cool things you can do with accessibility and just opening up education and learning and nature immersion and access to art, all this cool stuff. Again, very democratizing. The downside of it is how much of it does start to supplant real life in-person communal experiences, how difficult it becomes to separate sort of the virtual reality from our real reality. Um, The physical impact on it. I don't know that our human uh, primal brains are totally meant to understand what virtual reality is. And I know that because I've done a VR headset when a zombie game. Me too. I, I had like sweat pouring down my neck because it's three dimensional. You play a flat screen. You can see what's in front of you. If you're playing resident evil, it's scary. You can like pause it or whatever, but in a game where you could like feel something coming up behind you, like my lizard brain was like, what the hell is going Mm -hmm. on right now? And it was so scary and immersive. And then you think about like really dark things. Like if you get into really violent video games where you're virtually enacting violence or pornography as a whole frontier of VR. Like that's sort of scary to think about some of the ramifications out of that are a little disturbing to me. I wonder too, the implications for getting together with other people. So right Mm -hmm. now my son likes to play games online with his buddies and they they're either talking to each other through the game, or if it doesn't work, he's got his phone out and they've all called each other. So they're having a conversation four or five guys together playing the same game. They're having a ball. All right, that's cool, but you, they're not there with you. What happens if you get a VR experience where all of you can dial in and in a sense, your friends are all sitting there with you. At least your brain perceives it that way. There's a physical image of them and you're all in the same room. Okay, what's the advantage of getting together in person, which you have to drive somewhere, mm-hmm. you have to whatever. Why not just do this virtually? And I, I would have a concern that I think something really, really important is lost if we get into that kind of place, I think there's something crucial about being human that involves being in real legitimate human contact with other people. And I just think the better technology gets for those types of things, the more likely we are to be very content to not actually spend time with other people. Maybe I've seen too many episodes of black mirror, <laughs> uh, but yeah. yeah. But I wonder like some things like education or business, like I think mm. could be changed long-term because of the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think virtual offerings will make sense. Like, we, you know, for my, like my profession as a journalist, we sold our office, you know, during the pandemic, everyone's working remotely and we don't know when we're going to have a physical office again. I think we will at some point, but 
that's not uncommon to us. A lot of people sold yeah. their office buildings during the pandemic or rethought it. And you realize like, instead of paying someone to fly to San Francisco for a two hour business meeting, why don't we just do this on zoom? Mm -hmm. Some of it, I get it. And it totally makes sense. And I think it's good. But like you said, Anthony, there are certain types of in-person experiences, particularly I would say with friends and family. And I wanted to ask you about your experience with church. That would be another one where I know a lot of churches and I know you guys did too, did some virtual types of streaming of services and sermons. And some are continuing to offer that in addition to the in-person experience. But I know there's a lot of, uh, you know, verses about the, you know, where two or more are gathered in the actual communal nature of being in a Christian context. And I'm just curious about how the virtual church experience went for you, either of you guys. I'll say it from a pastor level and Taylor can comment from a parishioner level. Mm -hmm. Honestly, um, it made me lonely. Hmm. And so early on, we did a Facebook live stream of the sermon and people would weigh in. This was when everything was closed down and we spent, I forget how many weeks doing everything virtual. And so people would weigh in. They'd go, good morning. Good morning. I'm here with you virtually. They'd actually chat with each other. Not during the message, mind you, but. <laughs> of course <laughs> you not. Think, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so that was really cool to see people connect, but it just brought them to mind. And then I just missed them. And I suspect the same thing was happening there as well. And so I liked it. Um, I mean, it's good to have that connection rather than something else. But the idea that we might have to settle into that or settle for that would be very discouraging to me long term. I go back to even like for this podcast, we could probably record this virtually. Sure. We could all sit in our own homes in front of a screen and it just wouldn't be the same. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And from a church perspective, I think probably most people who are part of religious groups of various kinds would tell you that there's something about that, that public gathering, that a physical sense of unity, like we're all here at the same time in the same space, unified for a particular purpose. That's, you just can't replicate that online. Mm. You can mimic it, but you can't replicate mm. it. Yeah, you really can't. And I think that that leads people to have to, as we talk about, things becoming more accessible and is that a good or a bad thing? Um, people will have to try to be as conscious as they can about maintaining connections. So I was hearing all the time, especially regarding uh, virtual church that, you know, the connections just aren't there and that maybe we're teaching people that they don't need each other as much as, as we thought. And that it is as simple as logging on, watching a, a half hour church service and then jumping off. And we don't have to deal with, the, the before and after the service, like we used to when we were in person. Well, you had to have awkward conversations yeah. with, with people you might not know or mm -hmm. maybe barely like. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But for me, I actually doubled down like on the need for human connection. I know that not everybody did that, but I did. I, I saw that, wow, I, I really need this, this human connection right now. And so I'm going to maintain relationships and even talk to people maybe more often than I did when I saw them in person. So even if it was virtual, can you combat the lack of seeing that person um, live by just talking to them more often? So I talked to my mom, my family on the phone. I was Zooming them way more often than I would because I wasn't able to see them as often. And in a lot of ways, I actually felt more up to date, like on what was happening in their life. So yes, you run the risk of kind of losing some of that connection, but if you're conscious of it, I think you can combat it. You can combat it effectively. Um, but I, I, I think that people 
do need to make sure that they're not just falling into this trap of, of being okay, not having connections in person with other people. Like don't just because it is an option to watch the the church service streamed every Sunday when it's safe to get back there, you should get back there because you need to see those people. You need to have those deeper connections. Yeah. I definitely had the same experience where I had a lot of family zooms every week to the point where we're all like joking about it. Like, okay, are we like really going to family zoom again? Like, it's like, you know, getting like at the end of a holiday week and we're like, okay, we've all seen each other. Like this is fine. But I also had like friendships that really specifically were cultivated and developed during the pandemic. Cause we were zooming happy hour every week and we built this sort of virtual pod and they were friends. I didn't know that well before and became like my best friends during the pandemic. And some of my best in-person friends, pre-pandemic like sort of faded into the background but it did it, it did te- teach me a lot about intentionality and setting regular times to check in and communicate with people and then hopefully being intentional going forward in that in-person context of like okay now that everything's open and we can kind of go back to our defaults of like filling up our evenings with restaurants and bars and events and these sort of things to like still keep the relational part of it at the forefront I would also mention like two things that came to mind when you were talking, both of you would be like another area I saw this in would be um, things like therapy and Mm. things like government meetings. So therapy, you know, most people were doing virtually during the pandemic if they were engaged in counseling because that was what was safe and allowed. And I did hear um, I, I wasn't in virtual therapy during the pandemic, but I'm getting ready to go back into therapy. And I've been thinking about that. And I talked to a lot of friends who are in therapy that they were glad to have something because especially during such a trying mm-hmm. mental health time, but it was not the same as sitting in front of someone with yeah. the body language of a therapist. And it, it, there's a remove that happens on a screen that sort of turns someone two dimensional instead of three dimensional. And I also saw a lot of government boards because that's my job um, struggle with this and have frank conversations about it where it was the safest thing to do. There are a lot of, you know, compromised people on different government boards and you're cramming people into small meeting rooms and old government buildings that don't have good air mm-hmm. systems. So it was clearly the safest thing to do, but they all agreed. I think that even if it was safe, it, something was lost in the decision-making process that there seemed to be less respect. You know, people would sometimes turn their videos off, which might mean they were going to get like a drink or do something that they would not be doing in a government meeting that cannot get up from their mm-hmm. seat. So they seem sometimes disengaged. Um, things seemed lost in translation. It's just easier to be a little snippy and short on zoom than when you're sitting right next to me and I'm looking <laughs> you in the eye. We had a very famous incident where a County commissioner displayed a rifle on zoom during a meeting. He would not have been able to get up and get that rifle during a real in-person meeting. So there's just examples of where, yes, I don't think virtual can replace everything. And if we do, I think it's going to be to some loss or detriment to our interrelational and decision-making experiences. I don't think it's all meant to take place on a screen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It just also reminds me, maybe if there's levels to this, like if in-person is the most connection you can possibly have with someone, you can read their body language, you can hear their tone and inflection. And then after that, it might be zoom. So maybe you can see them, but if they decide to turn their camera off, it kind of, you're picking up on stuff like that. And you're like, oh, well, they're not fully bought into this conversation because they might not have even put pants on. Um, (laughs) and And then after that is like social media where someone is just sharing what they think or believe, um, in a comment or on a status. And that's like maybe the lowest level of, of interaction and how 
we've seen the the negative effects that that type of interaction can have. And it's oftentimes a negative interaction because of the way it was presented in the format that was used, not because it would have been that same way in person. Like we find that we, we hate other people so much when we're only reading their, their paragraph on Facebook. And we all know the reality that if that stuff was presented in person, we probably wouldn't dislike them as much. And we might agree with them a little bit more. And so there seems to be like levels to it. And people, at least for me, I I'm realizing that having had the decision made for me and that I can't interact with people as often as I'd like to, that I really do need to value people in a, in a different way than I ever realized. I think Zoom too encourages your worst multitasking uh, brain ADHD, you know, mm-hmm. because one, a lot of times the way you set up Zoom, you're looking at yourself and it's very weird and sort of vanity encouraging because I found it fascinating. <laughs> I, lo- I love the view. Yeah. <laughs> great view. You guys look great today. <laughs> oh, that's me. But if I, I, I mean, I am somewhat of a vain person or insecure or both. So if I can see myself on screen, you know, especially just women are a little bit fixated on our looks. I'll always be kind of like looking at myself mm-hmm. in the corner of Zoom being like, how's my bangs doing? Do you ever do the thing where you look off to the side and then try to see the screen before your eyes come back? A little quicker. That was my favorite. Yeah. Oh, I lost some friends that way. So really weird to have someone like pouring their heart out to you about what's happened on their week. And you're just like looking at yourself yeah. on zoom. It's not how you're meant to communicate. I'm supposed to be looking at your face and seeing how you're processing things. And also it's very easy to like do a tab shift. And then I'm starting to look at Facebook as you're talking to me on zoom or Anthony's giving one of his killer sermons. And I'm like, I'm just going to see what's going yeah. on in Rotten Tomatoes right now. Yeah. He's on this. Boring- I've, I have never done that. In well, Anthony's on this boring part about, self-accountability. I'm going to just tune out. I don't like this part. So, (laughs) but yeah, it just, and it's just, it's almost the same for why I like concerts. It comes to tie all this stuff together. I don't think it's always good for our brains and the way that we experience life to try to be processing multiple things at a time. Um, You know, it's sort of like shallow information streams instead of a deep focus and immersion in what's in front of you. And so whether it's a a pastor giving a sermon or a family member sharing what's happening in their lives or an artistic experience, I think there's something really beautiful and good for your mind and your soul to be like fully engaged with that right in front of you instead of like, I'm going to watch Mortal Kombat at home on my screen. I'm also going to be like looking at my friend's text and then going to the microwave to get my popcorn. And like, we just have lost this capability, I think, with screens to like fully engage in something that's right in front of us. And to me, that's like a a damaging trend. I don't think it's healthy. So I would say if there's an upside, I think, to this, it's that the pandemic has required us to do so many things virtually now that we've jumped up our game. So that's at a business level, that's at a church level, education level. And as we come out of this and things go back to in-person, those systems will still be in place. So practical example, our church had to really upgrade our online presence because everybody was virtual. Well, the upgrades are going to linger. So what we have now is a better product than we had before. And we might have been overlooking people who had difficulty coming to church because let's say they were incapacitated in some way or they were sick or they were they were gone and they wanted to see what was happening. Okay, those are now in place so that people who might have been once overlooked have a venue that was actually created for people in their situation. And so it feels like on the other side will be stronger kind of a two-pronged approach. I suspect businesses will find that to be true also because they've built their online presence quite a bit. 
My wife was telling me at, at least as of a couple of weeks ago, the DMV, everything is now by appointment. Oh, she said that was so much yeah. nicer. But the isn't there something was, like, I was just saying humanity about all of us yes. waiting in line at the DMV together. Yeah, so, we all had that in common. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so the upside was you, the hassle's gone. The downside is it can be a long wait. And then also, what do you do with people who don't have easy access to get online and do things online? Mm-hmm. Or elderly people who might struggle to understand it. What if there is no, like if they, if you totally take away the in-person aspect, you're going to create new kinds of divisions and new kinds of people that are overlooked. So I hope what happens going out of this is that this year and a half that we're in bumps up systems that help people who were once overlooked. But as we go back to what it was, we're not overlooking new groups of people. I'm so, so glad that you mentioned that because that was in my notes and something I really wanted to touch on was, again, going back to this idea of democratization, not only for people who can't afford certain experiences, but people who physically can't access Mm -hmm. them. And I did see that and heard that in my reporting and also just from personal connections with people during the pandemic. There is such a large segment of our population that's either homebound or has some sort of mobility or disability challenge. And in many ways, I heard from some of that demographic that the pandemic was really freeing because suddenly everyone was in the same boat that mm-hmm. they've always been in where they, they couldn't, there's no FOMO, you know, we're all mm-hmm. at home. We're all struggling to access the outside world. And I hope that's something that comes out of that too, Anthony, is that I, I think we need to remember that not everyone in society can access things the same way or experiences life the same way as we do. And it's good to provide access to those things. And that's for, for someone who's so shaped by the arts, like I am, I really want people to be, that's why I go back to Broadway, to sports, whatever. VR is so cool. I want someone in a wheelchair to be able to experience all the same things that I'm experiencing in life. The flip side of that being, I think education is a great example. There are kids who really struggle to learn online or don't have internet access at home or don't have a family that's technologically savvy. And they really struggle with learning during the pandemic. It's There's so much social interaction that happens with kids in a classroom environment. I know you know this, Anthony, as a teacher. Um, and so I think it's just helpful to know that like not every form is going to work for every, some people are going to struggle virtually and some people are going to struggle in person. And I'm hopeful that the pandemic has like helped illustrate that there are ways to provide multiple access channels. So go to that concert in person, but if you can't afford it, here's like a VR stream, you know, so that you can have some chances to experience those things too. Mm -hmm. As someone that can access nearly everything physically that yeah. I, that I desire. The, the one thing that the technology has afforded me is given me more time. So if I'm not having to commute to an office or, um, having to drive somewhere and, and it can just be a quick zoom meeting, then that affords me more time in my day. Now it doesn't solve the problem of what are you going to do with that extra time? Are you going to use that time? Well, or are you going to continue to scroll Instagram or whatever it is? But I like having that ability to now have extra time. Like I, I do, I have a lot more time. Um, I can say yes to a zoom meeting. I can say no to a zoom meeting. I understand some of that is, is owning my own business, not having like an employer in a traditional sense. But I think that society as a whole has realized that, that things don't have to be so complicated to get stuff done necessarily. And you can't replace in-person meetings but are there things that don't have to be so complicated and we can just just get them done? And then that leaves the person a little bit more time to find find other fulfilling activities or find their purpose or or it gives them more time to waste. 
Yeah. So I think as we maybe wrap up, what I'm kind of, I guess, as a final thought, what I'm curious about is I, it's so we're still in the pandemic. So it's going to be some time and some months or years. I don't think many of us have like fully processed what we've gone through in the last year, you know, and on an emotional level, on uh, psychological ramifications, how this might all change what our future looks like. I mean, people have had people die, you know, it's just, it's been such a traumatic and paradigm shifting last like 15 months. And what I'm really curious about is kind of what you were talking about at at the beginning of the show, Anthony, like getting back out there, this idea of getting back out there. One, are we just gonna be able to go back to normal? And two, should we? Like the should we is the bigger question for me that I'm thinking about with all of these things, whether it's how we access the arts or it's how we communicate with our friends and family, intentionality, being more purposeful with our time, like you're talking about, Taylor. There are so many profound challenges and questions that the pandemic put in front of us. And I think gave us this huge opportunity to grow personally and culturally and communally, whether we rise to that challenge or not, I don't know. I think it's going to vary for each person. And some of us might fail and some of us might succeed. I just am so curious about like, if we can get through this on a health level, is everything in society going to go back to the way it was before early 2020 or there are going to be profound shifts. And for myself, I'm just trying to hold on to some of these lessons that I think I've learned about how important like communal relationships are providing access to other people who are different than me to the same experiences I get to experience. I just, I'm worried. Like I think the human default sometimes is when it gets comfortable and easy again, we're going to go back to being comfortable and easy again. And I don't want to, I'm looking at your sign again, that says discomfort leads to growth. And I'm hoping I can hang on to some of these big questions that came up. I feel like there's a lot of coulds. On the other side, if there's one should that sticks in my mind is that we should uh, continue to be relational people, mm. whatever that looks like. And I, we've already talked about how one thing that technology does is connect us when it would be hard to connect. And that can be a really good thing, but it can also make us make it easy for us to have geographical distance when it doesn't need to be there. And we can be very content. Uh, interacting with people on screens rather than in person. So if there's a should that stands out to me, because I don't think we'll go back to normal. Okay. What should we do on the other side is figure out how to prioritize people. Mm-hmm. And so the gift of technology is that as a result of this, people who have been stuck with screens for whatever reasons now have more tools at their fingertips to try to connect with people as best they can. So I feel like that's a gift for them. I'm talking about those of us who have the ability to be out and about and and get together with people. I hope that on the other side of this, just because it's easy to keep our distance that we don't settle for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know that we'll go back to normal necessarily because I think that the experiences that we've all had and we all kind of approach those experiences differently. Some people let COVID um, drastically shape how they were approaching life because they had real fears about their health or health of others and other people didn't. They were like, no, I'm going to continue to live life as normal. However, those people didn't really get to live life as normal either because people that they were normally surrounded by weren't there because maybe they were taking COVID, uh, approaching it in a different way. And so for me, I'm going to let this inform how I move forward and just be much more conscious of the relationships that I have, who I'm prioritizing, 
And sometimes that means spending more time with certain people. And sometimes it means spending less time with other people. Sometimes it means spending more time on this activity. And sometimes it means cutting out an activity. And that's just kind of how I want to move forward is just being really intentional because for the first time in my life, I was presented with a world that was kind of making the decisions for me. And Mm -hmm. that's just, that was a very strange place to exist and continue to exist. Um, But it's definitely going to inform how I move forward and how I treat people. Yeah. And I think the the thing I'll be thinking about is like, even if we return to some semblance of quote unquote normalcy, I want to keep thinking about like, even for what I take for granted as normal in my life, should this be normal? Because I think the the pandemic did change so many things where it gave people a lot of opportunities to be creative and say, you know what? Restaurants have always looked like this, but guess what? They have to look like this now because they can't do anything else. Or the arts have been like this or church or how we connect with friends and family, whatever it is. Every single thing had to be rethought to be able to be done safely. And in some cases, especially our relational experiences, like Anthony is saying, I think we'll go back and should go back and prioritize those relational interactions. But other things, I I just think of the restaurant industry. I think of other areas where maybe this idea of normal wasn't healthy to begin with or had some things lacking in it that the pandemic exposed. The huge um, gaps in our social safety nets, healthcare. I mean, all these things came up, um, food insecurity. These were massive issues during the pandemic for a lot of people. And I think it exposed that our sense of normalcy as a country wasn't always healthy. So on a personal level, I can't like change everything nationally, obviously going forward, but I, the lesson I think I'll take away as I start to go back to events and re-engage with society is just like always asking that question, like, okay, this is normal now, but should it be? Particularly if we see technology creep into area of our lives where maybe we shouldn't see it. So yeah, I think that was a really good conversation. Good episode. Thank you guys. And uh, thank you everyone for tuning into episode six. See you later.